Welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Today I've got longtime friend of the channel and fountain of knowledge, John Atak. John was in Scientology for some time, but that's not going to be the main focus of today. We're going to be talking more about Charles or Charlie Manson and his crimes. Uh, he was back in the news. He's he's dead now, of course. Uh, but one of his cult followers, Leslie Van Houten, who was convicted in 1969 of the murder of a California couple, was released from prison after 53 years. So Manson is back in the news, of course, the cult of Manson, the Manson family. Uh, if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, that's there's a bit near the end that's very Manson-y, um, and we'll mention that a little bit. We're really talking, we're going to start talking about uh, how Manson was a Scientologist in, in the sense that he did 150 hours of Scientology auditing they call it uh, which is a lot more than John did and John was in Scientology for nine years so Manson was a fully fledged uh, Scientologist in that sense and people don't talk about it people don't really know that that was behind a lot of what he did remarkably Um, so John's going to take us through all of that we have a fun and interesting conversation I think hope you guys enjoy it do um, help the channel patreon.com slash Andrew Gold sign up there it's basically a tip each month uh, to help keep this podcast running Um, and there'll be lots of big episodes coming up I'm employing a guest booker as of uh, September so it's all going to be very varied and different I've got something coming up about Flat Earth for example but now you're on the edge of the Manson family and its links to Scientology with John Atak. John, tell me again. Okay, I'm not going to make you do this every time you come on the show. What if you give us one sentence about your history in Scientology? Just one sentence. I spent nine years in Scientology and I enjoyed it. And then I left. And that was 40 years ago this October. That was two sentences. Sorry. Wow. Well, it could have been a semicolon in the middle. Um, and I don't want to keep making John, every time we come on to talk, talk about different topics, I don't want to make John have to talk about uh, his whole story. I'll put a thing on the end screen. You can see John's story uh, back there. So, um, okay, let's also do little intros on who Charlie or Charles Manson was. Um, and I don't think we need to go into Scientology, but not everybody knows about everything, do they? So who was Charles Manson? Uh, Charles Manson um, was... Uh uh, kind of a cult figure he's he represents uh, the death the wilting of flower power if you like that um he and his family as they were known were arrested in december 1969 for a series of murders um starting with a man called gary hinman then a murder of a group of people including the actress Sharon Tate at Roman Polanski, her husband's house. And then the next night they killed a couple called um, uh, Lino and Rosemary Labianca. Uh, they also killed a man called Shorty Shea. Um, he's kind of the icon of nastiness. Um, and so much has been... I, I came to this because a mutual friend, Eric Hunley, I was on his show... And I'd done the usual thing, which was Eric said, uh, what do you want to talk about? And I said, anything but Scientology. Um, We spent an hour talking about Scientology. And then after the mic was, you know, after the recording was switched off, he said, oh, by the way, your your late friend, uh, Dr. Jolly West, um, programmed the Manson family. And I was like, what? You know, this guy I'd known uh, programmed the Manson family. And he said, yeah, it's all in this this best-selling book by Tom O'Neill called Chaos. And so I... 
I'd actually bought a copy of this book when it came out. Um, and I didn't read it because when I looked in the index, it didn't mention Scientology. And you can't actually talk about Charlie Manson without talking about Scientology. So I went on the show with Eric to, to kind of go, look, what Tom O'Neill's saying is the best he's got is that he knows that there was a time when um, Jolly West, Dr. Jolly West, was was in the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic and there was another time when Charles Manson was there and that was as close as he ever got them in the two and a half years after that that it took for the tragic events to unfold. Uh, Jolly wasn't a close friend of mine, but I met him four times and we spent hours together. And I was extraordinarily pleased when his assistant at UCLA Medical School said, Jolly keeps two books on his desk. One of them is the Bible. The other is a piece of blue sky. <laughs> and through the coming. day, he'll sit there and open it randomly and read a paragraph and laugh. You know? And so just to fill people in, a piece of blue sky is John's quite brilliant book about cult dynamics and Scientology in particular. Um, T tell us quickly about J Jolly West. Like, who who is he? Just people never heard that name. Who's Jolly West? Jolly West was a, a psychiatrist. He was the head of um, neuropsychiatry, I think it was, and biobehavior at UCLA Med School. Um, he was he's famous for various reasons. Uh, he killed an elephant with LSD, an elephant called Tusco. He didn't mean to. He didn't realize that that elephants don't like LSD. Um, no. And he was very sorry afterwards, especially as he had to pay for the cost of the elephant, you know. Um, and it, it would appear, and, and Tom O'Neill, I think, does have a reasonable argument to say it was a front group from the CIA that paid for the el dead elephant. So there you go. Um, he was a notable researcher into drugs. And the reason he comes into the Manson story is that in 1967, he ran a crash pad in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, the centre of the Summer of Love, and invited hippies who were tripping on LSD to come in and sit down while his graduate students made little notes about them and funny comments. Um, that's as close, as far as I can tell, as he got to Manson. Um, he happened to be in that part of the world briefly. But uh, he gave us the term demotivation, to explain what happens if you smoke too much dope every day. Um, and very curiously, oh, back in, I think it was 91, Steve Hassan and I had lunch in LA with Jolly West. And, and Steve said to him, um, what drugs were the Manson family using? Because he was a world-leading expert on drugs, not having taken them, but having studied them. And he, he immediately went Jimson weed. And this led me into um yeah the other part of my you know, one part of my problem is that scientology is not being mentioned in terms of manson and manson spent 14 months studying scientology he had 150 hours of scientology processing he read hubbard books and this information comes from manson's autobiography <laughs> so he talks about it but also from internal documents that were seized by the FBI in the largest raid in their history, which was on Scientology in 1977. Now, I thought these documents were known. I, In fact, in A Piece of Blue Sky in 1990, I wrote Charles Manson had 150 hours of auditing and nobody made any noise about it or got upset about it. Um, because I've got these documents, which are internal reports to 
Ron Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, who was the controller of Scientology's Guardian's office. And a month before the Manson trial started, which was July 1970, on the 22nd of June, a long report is sent to Mary Sue Hubbard saying, whoops, Manson did Scientology. We've got to keep this from the press. What's more, three other members of the family did Scientology. And Tom O'Neill doesn't mention Scientology at all in a book that took 20 years to research and write and is called A Masterpiece by the Times Literary Supplement. Why do you think that is? I don't think he understood its relevance. I, uh, Jeff, Jeff Gwynn wrote a book about Manson, and, and they're both very well-researched books. I just don't agree with O'Neill's conclusions about my friend Jolly West, you know, who he's basically, he says at one point, you know, uh, he's my great white whale. And that makes Tom O'Neill Captain Ahab. And Captain Ahab was a little bit obsessed and um, not very friendly towards whales either. And, and that's not popular anymore. So, um, But Jeff Gwynn knows about the Scientology, mentions the Scientology, but then says it was because he did Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People course that, that he knew how to control people. So looking in his bibliography, I'm like, well, what did he read about Scientology? And he read um, What is Scientology, which is a big fat book that's handed out to promote Scientology as a belief system, as a faith, as a religion, which doesn't show you that Scientology teaches well, 2,000 techniques of control, 2,000 ways of controlling people. And it's quite open about it. Hubbard talks about having infinite control, having the intention to control people. And their whole thing about their upper levels, the operating Thetan levels, is that you will be able to intend things to happen. You know, you will have magical powers. And so that's where I started from. Since then, I've read Tex Watson's book. He was led the murders at the Tate and uh, Labianca houses. Um, I've read um, Gwyn's book. I've read reread Manson's book. Um I'm just finishing this one, which is, oh, here we go. Member of the family, Diane Lake. Member of the family. Yeah, she was 14 years old when Manson recruited her. And her own parents had basically said this was fine because they'd become hippies. And, you know, she, you know, is, is cast adrift into this, what at first is a peace and love cult. You know, you've got to destroy your ego and love everybody. And eventually is is a... Yeah, murder and mayhem group she was not involved in any of the killings but she was a witness for many years during the various trials that eventuated by reading these books and looking at uh, susan atkins and lynette Fromm's books also members of the family it to somebody who has studied scientology it's very obvious just how much charles manson was was using the techniques of scientology so if we start with the famous Manson stare, yes, he did training routine zero, how to stare at people, how to confront people, how to get locked on eye contact with people. So that thing, which is almost the first thing that people think of with Manson, that, you know, staring people down came from there. And he himself says that, you know, basically he was five foot seven. Uh, he was scrawny. He was in prison for pimping and he'd spent most of, you know, from the age of 12, he was either in reform schools or prison most of the time. And he 
you know, must have had a terrifying existence because he was beaten up. He was in prison. And Scientology, he talks about the transformation in his life through Scientology that he now knew how to lead. He now knew how to take charge of people. So whether it's the most relevant thing, it's certainly incredibly relevant that, that he was, you know, engaging in these things. He later on will use Scientology words. So um, in Diane Lake's book, she suddenly starts talking about him teaching them about postulates. And this is a only Scientology uses the word in, in, in the way to mean basically a wish, a demand of the world that it should comply. She, use, she uses that word nearly 20 times in her book. So it, to her is very significant. Tex, Man, uh, Tex Watson talks about, uh, and, he, and this one I'm having difficulty with, he talks about Charlie Manson saying they had, all had to be deprogrammed. I have difficulty with it because I don't think the word was in the language in 1968, 69. Um, first use I can find is 1973. So I think Tex Watson. But the basic idea that he was saying, you're all hypnotized and I'm going to dehypnotize you. That's a fundamental idea of Scientology. And when people say that, you need to be a little bit cautious, I think. Saving the reactive mind. Just as an aside, I was talking to, um, well, I was talking last night, I was doing a stream about um, Ian Watkins, who is the, um, the the singer from The Lost Prophets, who did terrible, terrible things. I have to be careful about what I say exactly on, on YouTube, but terrible things to children. Um, and he was able to get women to not only offer up their own, but they were planning to have another for him to have his way with. And it reminded me of Manson a bit because and then I said it was quite cultish. And then people who were watching were saying, oh, that's not, well, that's, what's that, a cult? That's not a cult. But would you say that is sort of cultish? And is that the same sort of, how you get these people, as Manson did, to go and kill for you? How does that happen? It's the essence of what a cult is. A cult is, by definition, a, a group that reveres a particular leader or doctrine. So if you're obedient to somebody, then you're in a cultic relationship you know, whether it calls itself a religion, a psychotherapy, or, or, or just a partnership, that is a cultic relationship. What I'm working on at the moment, I'm working on a book proposal for a, a book about belief. And Manson will be a big fat chapter in there. Because looking at what's been said, I can show step by step exactly how his followers were indoctrinated, exactly what he did within the purview of somebody who has studied authoritarian groups for 40 years. And, of course, that makes me... I have a very different perspective to a journalist about that. And so there have been some excellent journalists, Tom O'Neill, Jeff Gwynn, they're really good at what they do. But to understand what they're looking at, you need a specialised knowledge. And um, Manson pulls together the tricks that he'd learned as a pimp, which, of course, are ways of controlling, um, in his case, the women. So he learned how to recruit women. And it's very simple. He used love bombing. He would find a relatively plain-looking girl and go up to her and say, you are so beautiful. And I'd like to say, Andrew, that you too are very beautiful. What can I... Just, I'm in awe of your beauty, Andrew. Are you being Charles or John? <laughs> we'll never know. And uh, I'm, if no. you're not careful, I'm going to tell everybody you were drinking chocolate milk before we came on. You know, 
<laughs> no, that's your secret. It's, a, it's protein. It's protein chocolate uh, stuff with banana just, in it. Justifications, you know, terrible debauch. I'm still concerned because I, I asked you if I've got any chocolate in my mouth, and you've said no. <laughs> but I can only see a small screen of myself. Yeah. So it's very possible that afterwards, people will be going, "Has he got?" sort of chocolate is around chocolate? his mouth so if that is the case i'm yeah. glad you brought it up <laughs> yeah absolutely so that's your excuse but but yeah, yeah anybody who is is bringing people to act against their best interests that's a cultic relationship plain and simple um it's not necessarily a cult but what are some of the things and so love bombing's one of them what are some of the things he was using on these women charles manson was using on these women that are straight from the scientology playbook aside from this so we've got the stare there's there's love bombing of course which is typical of, of many cults what is, that, is there anything else quite specific like that yeah um several people talk about him changing hats and, and he, that's the expression he used now what they mean by this is that he could switch uh personae he he could offer up a completely different person in a in a moment. Now, this would come from what's called tone scale drilling in in Scientology, where you learn to mimic emotions, um, so that you can control other people emotionally, so that you can make them feel better or you can make them feel worse. And I must say, I never took to the idea of making people feel worse. That seemed wrong to me, so I didn't do it. But that it, it's a technique that's used to recruit people that, that you make them feel worse and worse about themselves, you know, their fear of worsening, and bring them to do something. The changing hats, the term hat, was used by Hubbard to mean superficially a job, but more deeply a personality, uh, a beingness, as he called it. He liked adding ness to the end of things. Um, for some reason he loved making words up two 600 page dictionaries full of nonsense um but so we have him again using the, the the term hat but that he would switch personalities according to who he was talking to and of course you know he he had a fairly he, he hung out with some pretty ce celebrated people dennis wilson the drummer with the beach boys the beach boys recorded a charles manson song and Charles Manson was very upset because they changed the lyrics and the title. The song was originally called Cease to Exist. Um, he also hung out with Terry Melcher, perhaps not a well-known name anymore, but he was um, Doris Day's son, the major film star of the 40s and 50s. And he was one of the most wanted uh, producers, record producers, because he'd produced Mr. Tambourine Man for The Birds. And apparently told four of them that they couldn't play on it because they were rubbish. So he put session men in. Sorry about that. If David Crosby is watching this, it's nothing personal. But Roger Gwynn was, McGuinn was the only person who could actually play, according to Melcher. Terry Melcher, his girlfriend... I always thought that was... I thought it was Bob Dylan. Oh, he wrote it, but there was a huge... The huge international hit was The Birds. And that's the... Instead of, hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, you, you've got a bloke who can sing. Um... Terry, it's not that funny. Yeah. Stop it. Um, t t I thought it was really accurate. I, nothing tickles me like uh, impersonations when they're quite good. I, I, it's my one thing I wish I could do, and I can't. And oh. I love when people get them just right. There you go. Well, years of practice on that one, of course. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? 
the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Terry Melcher lived with Candice Bergen, the film star, and one of the recruits of the family was the, the daughter of Angela Lansbury, um, very briefly, thankfully. But So he was hanging out with the Hollywood set and, and doing all of that. In terms of other techniques, there's a specific technique that we know he did in prison because when Scientology investigated, they found the guy who had done all of this stuff with him over 14 months, a man called Lania Raymer. And he was in prison, according to Scientology's account, he was in prison because he'd failed to rob a bank. And the reason he tried to rob a bank was to get enough money to do Scientology. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Criminal activity. They didn't make him do it. I don't want anybody seeing me. You know, not really. I've yeah. had enough of that. Um, but... One of the techniques that, that he did is, is called space hand mimicry. And it's part of a set of techniques which are called the control communication havingness processes. And I'm falling asleep at this already myself. And that's part of the objective 
as opposed to subjective processes. Now, what you do with space hand mimicry, and Manson did this to the people around him all the time, to his followers, you put your hand up or both hands, and then the person is meant to follow the movement of your hands. And which seems simple enough until you go and talk to a hypnotist about it. And they say, oh, that's called pacing. You know, there are other ways of doing it, like following somebody's breathing or following their gestures. Um, in the Dead Poets Society, Robin Williams has the kids walk around the quadrangle and they fall into lockstep. And that's what he's trying to show them, that people will naturally pace. They will come under control physically and psychologically by mimicry. So uh, repetition, fixation and mimicry. That's that's my shorthand for anybody watching. That those are three ways of getting people into um, states where they can be more easily controlled and where they will often feel euphoric. Um, states called trans states by some people. Um, Scientology uses all of them. Um, repetition, fixation, mimicry. So the mimicry technique was something he did. And he then added to this by giving people... They'd have weekly LSD sessions, which usually turned into sexual orgies, where Manson would tell people who they were going to have sex with. And um, lesbian sex was all right, but no male homosexuality, because he pointed out that that had been done to him from the age of 12 onwards in school and in prison, and he wasn't keen on it. Um, but... And they, you know, in the family, you have a ratio of generally of five women per man. So uh, there was a certain amount of lesbian sex involved. Um, and this control, this kind of, we, he gives them LSD and does this. And again, O'Neill goes for, for this aspect and says they were programmed with LSD. Well, frankly, reading about it, most of them had taken LSD before they met Manson. It was everywhere in 1967 uh even the 14-year-old Diane Lake had taken LSD before joining Manson given to her by her father i think that's probably a little bit young personally but um so they come knowing what this drug does and then you're going hang on a minute we've not had a mention of scientology where's the deterrer where's this other drug which both manson and tex watson admit was being used and they both call it talache tea and i looked that up on the internet and they're the only two people who who've ever heard of talache tea but because jolly west had told me 30 years ago that it was jimson weed i went and looked it up and i already knew about deterra this drug um because i'd read about it when i was a teenager um the the thing called the British India Hemp Drugs Commission, which was the largest survey of drug users, I believe, to this day, possibly 10,000 people, because somebody had suggested that cannabis drives people mad. And so there was this huge eight volume report and they said, no, it doesn't. Cannabis is absolutely fine. So that was the point of view of the colonialists and the Raj at that time. But they also said alcohol should remain illegal in India for the native population, not, of course, for the soldiers looking after them. Um, but Datura should be extirpated. And I'd never seen the word extirpated. I was about 17. I'd never seen the word extirpated. So I looked it up and it went pulled up by the roots. So Datura was listed as an incredibly dangerous thing. 
I remembered that I'd met this ethnobotanist 30 years ago. I met this wonderful man and I got his email address because we still have a friend in common. Um, and I wrote to him and he, gorgeous man, he wrote straight back and he said, yep, that's Tala Oche tea. And yes, it's Datura. And it is the very definition of a bad trip. And looking it up online, you've got psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, mescaline, and they have a certain effect. They um, disorder your perception of the world around you. But what you see is based upon what's around you. You know, the, the rug, rug has letters in it that are moving around. Then there's a class of drugs called delirians. And I believe ayahuasca and ibogaine would be in this class. But the nastiest of them all is Datura. Tex Watson says that the first time he took it, which was, I think, the April of 69, so three or four months before the murders, it lasted for 10 days. He didn't know how he'd got from Spahn's movie ranch in the Siamese Desert where they were 30 miles away to Van Nuys. He had no recollection of that. He was picked up by the cops, crawling on his hands and knees among a group of school children, going, beep, 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 beep. Ten days tripping. And not with the world around you sort of melting and changing a little bit, but you're in the nightmare, you know. Um, probably from the descriptions I've heard, like K-holing on ketamine, which is an experience that lasts a few minutes, but extend that to 10 days. You've got no idea what's going on. And Manson, in fact, says that he never saw Tex Watson away from the influence of, of Datura. So the idea that this is the terrible thing that LSD did or was done doesn't really ring true. He was also, and against Manson's orders, he was also taking amphetamines. So, you know, by the time he gets to to the, commit the horrific crimes, which I'm not going to get into any details of. Um, he's he's out on LSD, amphetamines and Datura. And I think we need to take that into account, that there's the programming that, that Manson is inflicting upon them, but they're also contributing to it themselves. What is clear from all of the accounts is that Manson didn't take Datura and he didn't ask his followers to take it. So this is the random thing that's thrown into the mix. Is that you could also suggest though potential maybe it's speculating, but he, he went after vulnerable people. Uh you spoke about one one woman whose whose parent was giving them hallucinogenics, uh, and this guy's obviously got a problem. I mean, isn't that part of being a cult leader, sort of finding and targeting people who are already quite vulnerable? It it's a question of what vulnerability is. That that there is this common belief that that cult members are weak ineffectual unintelligent easily um controlled but in fact at the other end of the scale a lot of cult members are very intelligent i can't obviously count myself among such people but no um god forbid but also very determined also very capable if you know thinking about somebody like my friend mike rinder who had you know like 30 years of in Scientology, you, he is a very competent human being. He is smart. He's very capable of doing things. So vulnerability is not necessarily a negative vulnerability. It's not necessarily a weakness. One vulnerability 
a major vulnerability is um, changing where you live. If you move to a new place, uh, starting a new job, meeting a new group of people. These are all. Steve Hassan was had his. He was just broken up with by his girlfriend. I think when he joined the Moonies. That's exactly right. And three lovely young, young women invited him to dinner. I wonder why he went. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Gosh, but but that's it, isn't it? But that's vulnerability still, isn't it? I agree with you. It, that it doesn't mean positive or negative. It's just yeah, a sudden change in your life or something. But these particular Manson ones you speak of, they sound like they were vulnerable in a very uh, maybe since childhood. I think it's specific. Looking at the. The core individuals. Um, Tex Watson was was an all-American boy. He he was uh, an athlete. Uh, he'd done very well in school. Uh, there's nothing in his background to suggest problems. He then had a good job and earned good money. And he twice left the Manson family uh, the second time for three months, but was pulled back by something that that appealed to him. And I think you know, one of the other reasons that people join cults is that they look at the world, see how corrupt it is, and really want to do something about it. And somebody comes along and says, we know how to change the world. And, you know, they find themselves following Adolf Hitler or, you know, L. Ron Hubbard or somebody. And, I mean, there's another thing I think is very important about recruitment, and that is that we all have our own habits and routines. And if you can disorganize somebody's habits then you can give them new ones. You know, this is the idea of unfreezing, changing and refreezing, which is the simplest view of thought reform, Edgar Schein's view. And there are particular points of vulnerability as well. The teens, and when you get to around my age, these are the most vulnerable times. So don't try anything on me. Um, I haven't got any money, Andrew. Um, but so in your teens, you learn infatuation. This, this surge of emotional connection to the world that you, you probably didn't have as an infant and you become more vulnerable to agents of infatuation, things that, so the prime recruiting periods are the first term of college. You've gone away from home. You're in a new environment. You've got new people around you. That's why so many campuses prohibit, um, cult groups on on the campus but the point is that you know as with the moonies they've got two thousand different names <laughs> they'll just invent a new one and come along and say hi would you like to come away for three days you look fantastic andrew you look great you've got no chocolate milk on your face at all you know and away you'll go <laughs> thinking they'll probably give me some chocolate yeah. milk you know and it might be have a banana or something really nice so, so you're more vulnerable at that at that age in your teens things settle down with adolescence then in your upper 60s and your 70s you'll become more vulnerable again because certain functions of the brain certainly in my case are, are no longer functioning um and so you get people like the larouches followers of lyndon larouche the right-wing um political demagogue and they they look to obituary columns and find somebody who, who's been widowed or widowed and oh, that's awful. knock on their door and then uh, they do things like you know can i go to the bathroom and they look in your bathroom cabinet to find out what medicines you're taking so they can come down and tell you mysteriously uh what conditions you suffer from because they they know i think the the great steve martin deborah winger movie leap of faith 
shows a lot of the tricks everybody should watch that one it's that's about christian evangelists also a big fan of the righteous gemstones let's throw a plug in for that so here's a question i often ask about tom cruise and john travolta of course um would charles manson was he a true believer of something whether it be scientology or some sort of belief in himself or whatever it may be or was he a psychopath who's going okay i'm going to employ all of these rules to get people to follow me and do my bidding I think every case I've looked at, and obviously Ron Hubbard in, in more depth than any other, in more depth than anybody in their right mind should, every case I've looked at brings me back to what Martin Gardner, um, incredible critic of, of cult groups, author of, of wonderful books, he said you can be both a crank and a charlatan. And I think that with Manson and with Hubbard, that their self-belief that a part of the problem was that they did not believe themselves. They knew they were bad people and they knew that they were working a scam, but they also did believe in what they were doing. So Hubbard at the very end, um, guy who was with him called Serge Fouth, who reported in Lawrence Wright's very good book, Going Clear. Serge Fouth, Hubbard turned to him and said, I want you to make me a, an electrometer, the device the lie detector used in Scientology, that will kill me. I have failed completely. I have not achieved anything. And I heard, I interviewed people, the earliest was a woman who was with him in 1950, who was his girlfriend, Barbara Cloden. Um, but then over the years, I interviewed people who were with him at different times, and they'd all got this story that in private, he would collapse and he'd say, I'm a failure. Um, there are stories of his wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, having furious rows with him when they were on board ship in, in the Mediterranean, saying, you're a charlatan, you're a fraud. His own wife, who you know, helped him maintain the whole thing and went to prison so that he wouldn't have to. So I think Manson, I think Manson believed what he was what he was teaching and what he was teaching again there's there doesn't seem to be any simple statement of this in the literature but so his basic idea was this thing helter skelter that the the blacks would rise up defeat the black the white oppressors and meanwhile charlie manson and the family would have found what he called the bottomless pit and apparently none of his followers knew that this is a reference to hell <laughs> It's like they weren't sufficiently educated. And the bottomless pit would be in Death Valley and it'd be kind of underground, but there'd be enough light coming in that 12 types of tree would grow, each with a different... This is all true. Each with a different kind of fruit for each month and they wouldn't have to toil anymore and uh, they could consider the lilies of the field if they wanted to. Um, they would be fine and then eventually the blacks would realise, get this, that they weren't smart enough to rule the world. And they'd come begging for Charlie Manson to become king. And you kind of, no, they, they didn't believe that, really. One of the things, and so you've got Scientology, Dale Carnegie, the Book of Revelation, Revelation of St. John the Divine, and the White Album by the Beagles. <laughs> and not one member of the family knew what a helter-skelter is. They just took it on as this, this is this weird expression that means a war between the races. And kind of going, no, it's a fairground attraction. <laughs> it's a slide. 
you know, I'm coming down fast, you know, on a coir mat. It, you know, oh dear, Paul, Paul McCartney, what did you do there? It's nice when he screams like that, McCartney. He's got that great screaming voice, like an oh darling. He's incredible. I, I sat with um, Mark Dean, who was the record producer who signed Wham! and ABC and Five Star and, and lots of things. I hung out with him for a while because he got involved with Scientology. And we're in a in a bar with some guy who he said was the manager of the Stone Roses. I don't know if it was a road manager or a manager. but And um, this guy says, oh, John Lennon, great rock and roll voice. And I said, Paul McCartney, great rock and roll voice. And they were like, no, no. And he sort of go, go and listen to I'm Down and, and tell me if John Lennon could do that, you know. It's a brilliant man, John Lennon. But Paul McCartney was out in the wilderness for me because of wings and, and all of the nonsense for many years. And then about five years ago, I list, you know, I saw, I think it was the album's called Next and just went, this guy is a genius. There's a YouTube where you've got the four different timbres of human voice and the, then the range of the human voice, the six octaves. And he demonstrates that McCartney sings every one of them. He has the, the most, you know, incredibly variable voice so good for him you know we, we will forget mull of, mull of kintyre yes that horrible song but but so was the song that was i don't know you know i i always end up when i'm talking to you getting dates and references utterly wrong because i was born in 89 and i do know about some things that happened before but not everything no Paul mccartney's sort of the beatles song helter skelter is that before has Manson taken it from that? Yes. The 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 song okay. is on the white what's called the White Album. It's actually its actual title is The Beatles. And and it's a fantastic album. There's a wonderful remaster of it by George Martin's son Giles Martin, which, you know, usually remasters are like, what have I just paid money for? But in this case, you actually can hear that he's rebalanced things and he did the same with Abbey Road and Revolver. Uh, really splendid. But the Beatles, having done the, these incredibly, you know, complicated things on Magical Mystery Tour and, and um, Sergeant Pepper, you know, where the, the Calliope on For the Benefit of Mr. Kite, they took something like 30 different recordings of Calliopes, cut them in as tape into two second things and then put them all together to give this weird sound. But everything on there was so, and they just went, we just want to record an album as a band, just the four of us. So the White Album is almost a live Beatles album. And a bunch of the songs, it comes out in 68 and, and Manson's crazy for it. You know, it's like uh, Blackbird. That's a song about the coming revolution of black people take these broken wings and learn to fly uh anything you like he's he's found some interpretation of it and he believed also that the beatles were addressing the album to him they knew that the man's son the son of man the second coming of jesus had arrived and they were looking for him they knew he was in america because they'd written a song called sexy sadie and one of his followers was called Sadie. So it's actually about okay. Mahesh, the, the so-called Maharishi, um, and their feelings about him. Honey Pie, which is a song about um, somebody being in love with somebody who's gone from Lancashire to, to the US to become a, a film star, and, and this guy's wanting her to come home. This is, it says, cross the Atlantic. This means the Beatles are going to cross the Atlantic so they can meet Charlie Manson. You're making me crazy. 
that's about him as well, presumably. Did he, was he aware he was crazy and that was referencing him? <sighs> crazy Charlie. Bloody hell. So he must have been d- delusional as well. So we're talking about potentially psychopathic, delusional. I'm doing all the um, diagnosing. Yeah, let's diagnose him from our expert Psy- background. Psychiatric chair. I think DSM-5 would probably have said that, <laughs> yeah, uh, he was, he, he's that strange mixture that you often find with cult leaders that people look at them and call them geniuses. They think they're really smart, but they aren't. They're, they're cunning. They're very good at reading other people and seeing how they feel and how they respond and then changing hats then you know becoming the personality that will appeal to that um you know hubbard was not a deeply educated man uh having studied his life he read a load of pulp fiction cheap manuals on hypnosis and whatever he could get about magic and alistair crowley um that there's no deep study involved he doesn't know any philosophy Everything that he says about philosophy comes from Will Durant's story of philosophy from a single book. Um, and he, he actually dedicated his first, his book Dianetics, The Mental Science of Modern Health, as I like to think of it, is, was originally dedicated to Will Durant because that's where he'd learned all his philosophy from. You don't need to waste time getting a doctorate. Um, you just read this one book and you know everything you'll you'll be able to then tell your followers all about Schopenhauer and Kant and Nietzsche, you know, from the pages of one book. Same thing is actually said about James Joyce, that he read one book about philosophy, but he made great use of it to confuse people into thinking he was brilliant. You know, it's actually uh, he was brilliant, though, in his case, whereas uh, Ron Hubbard wasn't and Charlie Manson wasn't. Manson himself says he didn't learn to read and write until he was 27 in McNeil Island Penitentiary. This is not true. And it's one of the things we have to be careful of with such people, because believe it or not, they sometimes tell lies. Um, What is true is that Manson's um, reading skills were not very developed uh, until he started at McNeil Island studying Scientology. And he wanted to read Scientology books, and he did. But there was something charismatic about him. Um, you know, he was, as I say, he was a skinny guy. He was five foot seven, just under average height. But I think that women found him attractive. And that's a part of it, too. You know, that's not something that Ron Hubbard could claim because he was ugly. What can I say? It's just unfortunate. It's just the way it was. And he can't. Can't see me. In, in many respects, it's, there's there's a closer link to Tom Cruise, particularly with the height, the <laughs> attractiveness, the celebrity, the chasing of celebrity. Uh, that height thing, I, I, I return to it time and time again. Because you're six foot six, aren't you, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> I'm six foot three. Six three. Oh, you're, you're a midget. I'm sorry I had the right wrong idea. <laughs> yeah, well, just it's a difficult thing to say because there's so many... Sh- love- so you're not a Randy Newman fan, you know? The, <laughs> the, Toy, Story, the Toy Story singer. Where the, the man who wrote Don't Want No Short People Round Here and... Oh, uh, uh, I don't know that song. I, 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 know, I just know him from Toy Story. Oh, well, oh, you should... Check check him out. Check him out. Uh, Harps and Angels. Buy a copy of Harps and Angels. Brilliant, brilliant songwriter. 
Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I think I've heard John Ronson talking a lot about Randy Newman. I think he's a huge Randy Newman fan, um, the journalist John Ronson. Who- yeah, he did. I, I remember him doing something about it. I'm not keen on John Ronson because his, I think his first television interview was pandering to a Scientologist. So Was it? And sitting there ro- rolling up his little cigarettes and saying, well, this Scientology looks like a really good thing, you know. He didn't. He did. He did. That's the first time I ever saw him. And then... Then the men who stare at goats, I, some of that material came from me. Did it? And I, I'm not acknowledged. Yeah, I, I wrote a paper about the Spoonbenders and their connection to Scientology uh, back, back, back in the mists of the early 1990s. And I'm fairly convinced that he saw it along the way somewhere. So I'd like £1.50 in royalties from, from his work. Maybe £2. Pounds, well, John, is a, John is a friend of, the, of this channel, so I shan't join in your shenanigans. Uh, other John <laughs> no you shouldn't and and I do apologize to him fulsomely on my behalf I shall indeed I shall indeed <laughs> but going back to my point about short people I wonder if that's played who you like yes I do like very much has that played a role you got Cruz you got Miss Cavage you got Manson they're all people of diminutive Win- stature Winston Winston Churchill five foot three he was a five three he was he was uh, he was, I promise you. And he's looking him up now. Adolf Hitler, <laughs> six inches taller than that, actually. Uh, five, six. Winston Churchill, I've got five, six here. Five, six. Oh, sorry, I've taken three inches from him. <laughs> okay. I think I think that, that can be a driving force. Any Anything where somebody feels that they're being picked on or, let's say, belittled, um, might drive them on um napoleon wasn't wasn't short though either he was five foot seven you'd better check that as well um david miscavige who hasn't really featured much in this conversation what is he five foot four or something something like that I, well five seven i would say is quite short but i think for the time it wasn't no at the time it was above average height and uh, th- the last time i saw anything about averages it was five foot eight and that's been repeated to me throughout my life. So whether it's true or not, but no, Napoleon was was a prince among men. Yeah. He just made the mistake of hiring very tall generals or marshals, as he called them. So in paintings where he's with the marshals, they're huge, and he's little bloke with my tummy hurts with his hand on his tummy all the time. Um, it's very sad. Five foot nine is the average height in the UK now in 2022, uh, which is 178. 0.2 centimeters for those of a European persuasion um, or, or, or otherwise, or otherwise, I suppose. Um, so, right. So we've got this sort of Tom Cruise like Manson guy. I mean, and then he's gone. He's done the, some Scientology stuff. He's recruited mostly women, but some men. They're all following him. Then, how does it get to guys go out and do some murdering in the name of in the name of a race war? Wasn't it white people he was killing? Well. He was saying they would be killed, and from the accounts of his followers, he didn't use the N-word. He said blackies, which is just as bad, frankly. Um, 
But he was not overtly racist. He did say they have been oppressed, they will rise up, and he believed that they would become his subjects one day. But when you look at the system he'd gone through, it had been, you know, there'd been Jim Crow and segregation throughout his life. Um, prisons were segregated. Um, so he would have been kept away from, from black people generally. Um, the, the, the tumble down happens because Tex Watson gets into a drug deal where he thinks he'll just take the money and run. And the, uh, Loads of Popper, and that that's his the name he used, a man called Crow, um, who was apparently 300 pounds in weight, didn't like having his money taken. And he figured out where Tex Watson was and had taken, some, taken a woman hostage who'd been involved in Watson's little scam on him and was saying, I'm going to kill this woman if you don't bring me my money. And he called charlie manson on the phone there was a phone at Spahn's movie ranch which by the way is where bonanza and things were, were filmed before the manson family got there i think rawhide was probably there as well you know geez, clint eastwood's first it's like in that tarantino movie isn't it they, they sort of show that the recent tarantino movie once upon a time in hollywood yeah which, which i it's funny i was talking to casey at the cult vault about this and um, she was, you know, how dare he change the end of the story? And I was kind of, you know, that's the thing I really like about the movie, that the murders don't happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've spoiled it now. Oh. <laughs> yeah, cut that bit out. Everyone's seen that that movie, haven't they? And uh, I think, or, or they're not going to. Yeah, everyone. And, well, he changes the end of Inglorious yeah. Bastards as well, uh, to brilliant effect. Mm. Yeah. How dare he? You know, but bless Quentin, eh? Yeah, no, absolutely. So then they go out and start killing people well what happens is that that they go to rescue this young woman who manson says he doesn't actually know and they go with a gun and the guy who's got the gun chickens out and manson ends up shooting this guy in the chest and he thinks he's killed him and there are two witnesses who he leaves alive so he thinks that and the next day in the news it says a black panther's been killed and he thinks he's killed a black panther and he knows that if you do that, you will get hurt. You know, they, they don't like it when you do that. So that starts, that's the process that begins the, the, the problem. Then there's another, they try and get some money out of a, of a, a guy who, there are different accounts of him. Um, Diane Lake, who knew him, says he was just this lovely man. And she doesn't believe that he was, manufacturing synthetic mescaline which is what other sources say but he's told that the mescaline's no good and he's got to come up with some money and charlie manson attacks him with a sword and cuts part of his ear off and he's then actually held for some time by bobby Beausoleil, Beausoleil, sorry um and and killed uh in the end um and the cops pick Beausoleil up and so a plan is formulated and it doesn't appear to have been Manson's plan. You know, this idea of the cult with this one person pulling the strings for everybody. The, the, the brainwashed zombie, no, don't, you don't meet them. There are people who are more or less under the control or the spell of the leader, but they will contribute their own 
stuff to it. So the family decide that the thing to do would be to go and commit some more murders and make it look as if the same person who killed Hinman, because there were words scrawled in blood at the Hinman um, residence, they will make it look like that so it can't have been Bobby Beausoleil and they'll let him out. That's not what happened because, in fact, the murders weren't connected by the cops. In fact, the tape murders and the next night, the um, La Bianca murders, even they were not connected together by the cops until um, a member of the family started talking in prison, boasting about having been involved in these things, which is how they caught him. If she hadn't, they might well have got away with it all. Uh, which wouldn't have been a good thing. So he'd thought he was going to get a music contract with, you know, recording with the Beach Boys or, or recording for Terry Melcher. He'd been turned down on that. So all of the peace and love in him had drained away. And he was now determined that his prophetic um, forewarning of Helter Skelter was about to come true. So what he added to the tape murders and... He did go into the house after they'd been committed. He wasn't there at the time. He wasn't there when Hinman was murdered. And he wasn't there when the Labiancas were murdered. But he was very much involved and admits that, that he was, you know, he took part in a conspiracy to commit murder. And so it was right that he should be in prison. It's strange that his autobiography says this. But he thought it was terribly unfair accusing him of having manipulated these people into the murders when they had participated willingly, when the idea had not come from him. Um, so, you know, a true cult where, you know, one of the aspects of cult, I, I sometimes, and it's rude of me, I, I call Scientology the B org, um, because they call themselves the org, you know, the organization. And I call them the B org because that's the Borg. And I'm not a Star Trek fan, but the Borg have one mind, all of the individuals. They're like an ant, you know, colony, termite colony. And I think the same becomes true within cult groups that people begin to act out what we might call the programming, the, the ideas, the doctrine, the dogma. And I think with the Manson family, they thoroughly got on board with the idea that Helter Skelter was coming. And the tape murders could be the beginning of that. So they tried to leave signs saying that that black people had done this, which again, the cops didn't read, you know, they didn't understand what they were, they even misspelt Helter, H-E-A-L-T-E-R in Helter Skelter, you know, so yeah. literacy, you know. Literacy, it's important. And it all started really with a sci-fi writer who founded Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, in a sense, who knows what might have other otherwise happened. Has Scientology publicly denied, have they moved to cover up that Manson had been a, a fervent member in a sense oh yeah yeah a few weeks ago um my friend steve hassan uh, phd let's add that um he wrote a he writes a column for psychology today and because um the um we leslie van van hooten was about to be released he wrote about the control issues and the extent to which we could consider her responsible for her actions or not. Um, you know, diminished responsibility, as it's called in law. And I think diminished responsibility is certainly an aspect of this case. And the idea that this poor woman had been you know, apprehended, I think, in December 1969. And here we are 
50 whatever years later and she's still in prison that does seem you know rather draconian but understandable given the you know the horrible nature of the killings but because that had come up steve wrote his piece for psychology today and he said and charles manson had 150 hours of auditing and let me point out that in my nine years i didn't have that much so this is a lot um this is you know and so he put that in and immediately psychology today got a complaint saying you know and they sent them a copy of a newspaper article from the guardian in 1971 which talked about somebody having withdrawn the libel that charles manson had been involved with scientology and this was proof psychology today folded the, the same day i sent them the actual internal directive with the 150 hours in and said you know i'm an expert witness on scientology which means that what i say may be considered factual you know the high court appointed me an expert witness in 1987 and when i wrote about it in 1990 they sued me for various things in well they sued me actually for one thing in a piece of blue sky but they did not. No, actually, they did sue me for more because they sued me in New York before that. So they sued me for a bunch of things. Lovely people. But they never brought up the Manson allegation. And Psychology Today, I got, got this email back saying, we don't have time to look at books and chapters. And it's like, it's one piece of paper that I sent you with my credentials, which are good. But so, yes, Scientology does not want people to know. And and. He didn't study Scientology in a Scientology organization. He, the, the guy who taught him had no um, right. You know, he wasn't a minister or whatever of Scientology. Um, and Scientology had nothing to do with the murders or the Manson family. But the dogma of Scientology had everything to do with, with these murders. And I think if we took that out of the equation, that the family would never have been formed. Um, the, because without these control techniques, he wouldn't have been able to lure these women in, many of whom were runaways, of course. You know, the, the kids in their teens who, who, you know, dropped out of a, a society that was a little difficult, who objected to the Vietnam War, you know, and um, wanted um, to, to create a paradise on Earth, you know, that kind of hippie longing that was... Uh, you know, part of part of the times, and they really. It sounds as if the family had a great time during the first year. You know, I'm not so keen on orgies personally. Never really wanted to do that, um, but you know, different strokes for different folks. These people seem to have been happy. They seem to have been um, not dangerous or deleterious to the world until Manson ran out of money. And set them to stealing cars and um, things kind of went you know lots of popper is shot and not in fact killed he man said the manson was incredibly surprised when he walked into court to testify against him so i thought you were dead no. um but otherwise he kept the training routine zero stare going and the little x on his forehead which he later transformed of course into a swastika to to please people but yeah without scientology it wouldn't have happened sounds quite definitive and I, 
it's quite amazing really and i think it shows why people like you and your amazing channel have to keep speaking out because psychology today we're too scared to do so you need to keep mentioning how dangerous this ideology can be and they can find you on john atak family and friends or friends of i always get the wrong way around family and friends i think it is family and friends yeah you don't even know why would I know? I've done 420 videos and <laughs> I, I have no recollection of any it's of them. I don't even know how many I've done. Thank you, John Atak, for coming on the show again. Please, guys, go to John Atak Family and Friends uh, for his YouTube channel. It's fascinating. John, just he knows so much stuff about everything. He's like a walking uh, encyclopedia. So he's brilliant. Go and do all that stuff. His book, A Piece of Blue Sky, that's his sort of big winner he's done a few he's done other books as well but that's going to be in the links go and get hold of it if you want to learn how scientology how cult thinking really works um i think my next episode or one of the next episodes will be a debate with a flat earther that's going to be interesting as i look to vary the interviewees a little bit please do help uh support the podcast on patreon.com slash andrew gold that's patreon.com slash andrew gold and i'll see you guys next time Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.